The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Great. Great yeah. to be here, Father. Good to see you. Yes, you too. Uh, Father, I thought we should begin our program tonight with a little update on our What Catholics Believe coffee mugs. We uh, attempted to roll these out last week. Um, we had a little bit of uh, technical difficulties with the website, the platform that we were using to sell them. Uh, our account was actually closed down, uh, apparently due to Repeatedly. some policy breaches. Yes, Father. But uh, we are now on a new website selling these, uh, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot more success there. Um, so that new link is posted on our website, wcbohio.com. We can also post the link in the description of this video, but anyone who's so interested... one can go to the wcbohio.com website and order comes. Yes, right. Oh, yes. Okay. Good. Yep. But thanks for setting that up, Tom. No problem, fine. <laughs> so I'll just apologize to all of our viewers uh, who actually did purchase them last week. We... Uh, that money has been refunded. I don't think the, the charge ever actually went through, uh, but the new link, as I said, is up on our website, and they are now officially available for purchase on mm. our website. What Catholics believe you don't mugs. You don't see any nefarious hand behind the canceling of the uh, of that uh, access, do you? I mean, it's not just someone didn't like the Beatitudes. It was I don't think so, just Father, a, but a, a glitch <laughs> of some kind. I would not put it past them. But, um, <laughs> I see, okay. I think but now the, the, the problem is solved. Yes, Father. Well, thank yes, goodness. Thank you for persevering. Yes. No problem. My pleasure. Okay, well, Father, we have a lot to talk about tonight. There's so much going on in the world today. Um, our own country, the Vatican, obviously, and even our neighbors to the north in Canada. But uh, I really wanted to begin the program tonight with some viewer email because we have uh, some great questions. One of these we've, we've had for uh, for several weeks now, and we've been attempting to <laughs> to answer this Mm -hmm. This question would have uh, never actually arrived at it. So I'd like to begin the program with that tonight. Um, so I could just read from this email. Sure. Father, this viewer says, the, in regards to the Eucharistic fast of 1957, Pope Pius XII's Motu Proprio Sacrum Communium, dated uh, March 19th, 1957, uh, he reduced the Eucharistic fast from midnight to three hours before receiving Holy Communion. However, towards the end of the Motu Proprio, it reads, quote, but we earnestly exhort priests and the faithful who are able to do so to observe the ancient and venerable form of the Eucharistic fast before Mass or Holy Communion. Uh, end quote. And this viewer asked, why do traditional churches and clergy not mention this part of the motu proprio, but they only mention the three hours, uh, the three-hour fast as the obligation? Why they don't mention it, I don't know. Uh, this uh, writer raises a good point that when Pope Pius Twelfth uh, gave the permission for the three-hour fast from solid food and alcoholic beverages, from uh, liquids up to an hour, and water anytime, 
It was a remarkable change in the sense that it uh, it changed from the previous the previous um, and he says ancient practice of fasting from midnight, and uh, that uh, Eucharistic fast from midnight was uh, an absolute fast, banning not only um, solid food, alcoholic beverages, but even water, and. Uh, so, depending on when when it was able to attend Mass on a Sunday and uh, uh, receive Holy Communion on Sunday, um, that person would have to have fasted for hours, um, perhaps even half a day, you know, if they attended a uh, a uh, 12 noon Mass or somewhere around there. So, um, this was a, a substantial sacrifice that people had to make to re- receive Holy Communion. They had to prepare themselves for it, and uh, I tend to think that uh, in the course of the years, people who grew up with this became accustomed to the idea and, um, you know, made the sacrifice to receive our Lord in Holy Communion. Um, in those days, um, before Papias Tenth, as you know, a child might not receive First Holy Communion until he or she was 14 years old or so, right? And uh, so... You know, at that time, they were expected to be able to make a little more of a sacrifice at that age. With little children, uh, it was more difficult, obviously, for a little child, uh, seven, eight years old, to receive Holy Communion faster at midnight uh, and, and not even take a drop of water. To be very careful not to swallow a drop of water and break the fast was a bit of a chore. Uh, Pope Pius Twelfth was motivated, I think, by the same... Uh, spirit that St. Pius X had before him to make the reception of Holy Communion as available as reasonably possible, as spiritually possible, but at the same time still maintain a fast. Um, One might argue, I believe, uh, rightly, that someone who is obliged to abstain from solid food for three hours uh, has to actually be mindful not to eat during that time. Uh, one can become hungry uh, three hours after eating something, so it does take a bit of mindfulness not to eat. Within that amount of time, the stomach does clear, I understand, of the food that has been consumed, so you know the stomach is emptied uh, after three hours of uh, fasting from solid food. And I imagine also from an, an hour of drink and so on. So, uh, you know, if the idea is to have the stomach emptied for the sake of receiving our Lord um, worthily, you know, into a body that is, uh, you know, ready to just receive him and not, not to, uh, you know, uh, be encumbered with, with other foodstuffs and other nutrition and so on, that, that it serves that purpose. The three-hour fast does serve that purpose. Uh, the, the so-called fast of the Novus Ordo does not. I mean, uh, I think there's a one-hour fast at most, and that doesn't even, um, doesn't even apply to those who are taking care of the sick. So, you know, for the Novus Ordo fast, such as it is, one could actually set out from home eating a ham sandwich, and by the time they get to uh, uh, the handing out the hosts at the Nova Soto, that you know they could easily make it under an hour. Or so. In any case, I think that I think that clearly does away with the whole idea of fasting entirely. Uh, the three-hour fast is not, though. Uh, 
but Pope Pius XII did say that those who can maintain the ancient practice should do so. He encouraged them to do so. That's the word he used, right? He encouraged them to do so. Even giving the permission to observe the three-hour fast, he did encourage them to observe the midnight fast, if at all possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, why priests don't uh, make that point, I don't know. Uh, I must say, I myself have made that point only rarely. Um, and I can tell you, speak for myself, I made that point rarely because I think that Pope Pius XII saw times ahead uh, when the midnight fast might be very difficult. Um, and that it would uh, keep people from away from the Blessed Sacrament at a time when he, as Pope Pius XII, recognized people needed access to the Blessed Sacrament. <clears throat> it could very well be, I don't know, uh, Pius XII might have seen as I'm sure St. Pius X himself foresaw into the future, the times we're living through right now, when the modernists had taken over. I don't know that Pius XII ever alluded to that, but Pius X did. <clears throat> and uh, we'd find a situation here where the New Order liturgy came in, uh, the profanation of the Blessed Sacrament, even to the point of um, uh, even rendering perhaps the new mass itself intrinsically invalid. There are those who argue that point. So that the Catholic people would have access to the Blessed Sacrament only by driving, driving long distances or going through extraordinary travel times. I don't know what, the, uh, what they saw in the future, but all I can say is uh, it, uh, it probably was motivated uh, in the mind of Pope Pius XII, by the experience of the war, that certainly had a, an effect on it. Mr. Uh, well, I, I'll let me put it this way, Monsignor Marceau, who was our um, traditional priest in Florida for quite some time, God rest his soul, uh, was a military chaplain throughout the war. And he described traveling up the front lines uh, in Europe, <clears throat> offering mass on the hood of a jeep, uh, traveling further up the lines, offering uh, a yeah, second mass, a third mass, a fourth mass, a fifth mass on a Sunday, traveling up the lines. Um, and, uh, you know, the Catholic soldiers, wherever they were entrenched, he would be there to offer mass for them. <clears throat> and um, the only actual, uh, even fluid that they can consume, the only, the only food that they could actually consume was the Blessed Sacrament itself, the whole time. Uh, this created some serious difficulties, even in terms of uh, purifying the chalice at, at the end of Mass. You'd use water to do that. If you can't take a drop of water uh, because you're going to be offering another Mass in those days, even from midnight, uh, let alone three hours later, uh, this became not only a, a personal problem with maintaining one's consciousness and not getting dizzy and but uh, even, um, just as I say, a practical problem of purifying the chalice. So that the, um, <clears throat> the allowance of taking some water at any time uh, meant that if a priest had to offer multiple Masses, he could at least purify the chalice at the end of Mass, 
ordinarily, you know, if a priest would have a second mass for for, for the faithful, within, well, well, in, in the old days, the priest would have had to have consumed the chalice, the precious blood, uh, and just basically put the chalice back into the into, into the tabernacle, store it there, <clears throat> until finally uh, the last mass, he was free then to. Uh, Take water ablutions, and uh, and um, you might have noticed that here at Immaculate Conception uh, we have two. We we had three and even four masses on some Sundays um, during the you know the pan pandemic uh, to accommodate all the people we could, and uh, the priest would not take any wine until after the last mass. He would purify the chalice only with water. Well, Papias XII's allowance uh, actually made that possible. That would not have been possible before. <clears throat> in wartime, there wouldn't have been a tabernacle to put the, ta the, the chalice in at all. So the priests would have had a more serious difficulty uh, dealing with that problem then. <clears throat> so um, I, don't, I don't know why all of the reasons why Papias XII uh, shall we say, uh, lighten that, that, uh, uh, that heavy um, past, right? Um, but I will say that in light of the current day's demands, it has been very helpful uh, with regard to making the traditional Mass and our Lord and Holy Communion available to the people. Mm -hmm who often uh, have to travel to quite a distance to, to get to attend Mass. <clears throat> but, uh, and why priests don't, don't urge others who can observe the uh, stricter fast to do so, I don't know. This question has brought to my mind, though, the need to do so, and I intend to do so. Yeah. I want to bring it to people's <clears throat> attention that if they can observe the midnight fast, they should. He's encouraging them to do so. Mm. Um, so, uh, I, I guess I'll just have to leave it at that. His question was, why don't priests do that? Right. I can't yeah. answer that question. Okay. <laughs> okay. I can answer it only in yeah. terms of myself, yeah. that, I, that I intend to do so, mm -hmm. to bring it to their attention. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Father. That's very interesting. We had another uh, question concerning the Fast for Holy Communion from a very faithful uh, viewer and friend of the program. Uh, she wrote in and says, Thank you so much, Father Jenkins, for your decades of instruction through what Catholics believe. I've learned much from your live broadcast as well as from your remote videos. She says, I know that medication taken with water never interferes with the reception of Holy Communion. Uh, would you like to know about other things like cough drops and uh, similar things, uh, taking those less than three hours before Holy Communion? Would that break the fast? Well, it could. It certainly could. I mean, anything with nutritional value, you know, with sugar in it or anything like that, to sweeten it, anything with nutritional value would be considered a food. And uh, so if they take something that has uh, nutrients in it, uh, it would be considered taking food, uh, nourishment, and it would, yes, technically break the fast. Um, you know, a lot of that depends also on just how necessary that is. Uh, obviously, if, if somebody uh, has a cough and wants to make the cough go away because they're going to go to Mass and they don't want to be coughing at everyone, um, they might be induced to do something to try to alleviate the cough. Uh, 
Lozenges are one means, but there are other means too of dealing with that. So um, I'd say they should try to find other means um, to alleviate that cough before coming to Mass. Certainly, I mean, it's not only a matter of, uh, of their own convenience, but it's a matter of the people around them too. I mean, they shouldn't be coughing all over other people, and uh, especially these days. Someone coughs and everyone freezes. <laughs> like, so it's, it's like a uh, hand grenade going off. Uh, people are hypersensitive to that now. Um, but I would just say that they should avoid these lozenges as much as possible and just try to solve the problem some other way. Okay. Great. All right. Um, some people ask about gum, chewing gum, too. It comes down to the same thing. If there's some actual nutrient in the gum, um, that would be you know, in part of food, then uh, it would break the past. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, well, Father, we had a question then uh, concerning your thoughts of uh, Thanksgiving after Holy Communion. We've talked about before Holy Communion, but uh, we had, uh, again, a great friend of the program write in and say that uh, he would appreciate Father Jenkins' thoughts concerning Thanksgiving immediately after Communion. Although the four ends of sacrifice come to mind, namely adoration, thanksgiving, reparation, and prayer, I would appreciate knowing Father's personal thoughts on thanksgiving after Holy Communion. Well, I'm entirely in favor of it. St. Alphonsus Liguori, if he saw someone leaving Mass early, would actually have a couple of acolytes follow him with two candles and he decided them because he was actually carrying the Blessed Sacrament within him. They say for about 15 minutes or so, one can count on the Blessed Sacrament being present within you until your natural body processes uh, consume the host. But um, this means that at least, at least during that time, someone should be thoroughly recollected about the, the Divine Presence. And, um, you know... Our Lord comes to us because of his love. He wants to convey his love to us in this most extraordinary way. And when we think about the love that God has for us, that would motivate his providing his, his own body and blood, soul, and divinity to us in this way, and not only in bringing the, the sacrifice uh, that he made on the cross, to us making it visible to us upon the altar, but making it accessible to us as food, to actually unite with the sacrifice that he made in this wonderful way, uh, that he gives us an opportunity not only to come to the altar to meet him, bringing his love to us in this most ex ex amazing expression of love, but that we are able to bring our love to him. It is our love for him that motivates us to come forward, to kneel down. We have to have kept our souls without mortal sin uh, to worthily receive him. We had to make, we had to fast in order to worthily receive him. And so there are certain things that we had to do motivated by love for him to be able to approach him in the sacrament, to receive him worthily. These simple things that we did, of course, are just tokens compared to what he did on the cross for us. But uh, there, his love meets our love at the communion rail. And it, it is an exchange of love. I mean, he, he gives us his love and we 
present to him our love for him. So it is like this. It's just absolutely, well, again, breathtaking is a word that comes, comes to mind. And um, we should be so mindful of the divine presence there at the Mass. And when we go to receive our Lord in Holy Communion, so recollected as to what we are doing, um, why we're there, and who, who is coming to us. Now, that is a single-minded thought, that we're not distracted by anything going on around us. We're just mindful of that divine presence coming to us. And uh, then when we receive our Lord, of course, that should occupy all of our thoughts. So yes, we have to get up from the community rail, walk back to our places. Uh, we're going to weep our way perhaps through a variety of people on the way back down the aisle. But uh, we should try as much as possible uh, to just be mindful about who we're carrying, that our Lord is present within us, um, even as our Blessed Mother was thoroughly aware. You know, she carried our Lord within her. And we come back to our places, and that, that is where we should completely be oblivious to everything else. Right? I mean, the Mass will continue, it's true. But if we attend a large chapel with a lot of people receiving, we can easily have 10, 15 minutes right there while the communion itself is going on, while the priest is making the ablutions of the chalice to be thoughtful of nothing else but the divine presence within us. Our Lord is personally present there. That's the most amazing thought possible, really. And uh, to try to unite our minds and our hearts to Him. We talk about prayer being the raising of the mind and the heart to God. But there you have the divine presence within you. And you become somewhat like um, St. Um, Teresa of Avila, who dwelt upon the divine presence within her in sanctifying grace. Here, she has not only grace, which has created grace within her, a quality of her soul. Here she has actually the divine presence in person. She has the very personal presence of the very Son of God within her. You can imagine the thanksgivings that she was able to make. Yes, uh, and, and the love that um, was adduced by that divine presence from her soul. So really what we need to do is we really need to focus on that, that aspect of uh, the love of God being present here. Here is the very source of love, the very creator of love. We have the infinite and eternal very source of what love is right there, personally present within us and uh, that he poured his love into that chalice and that he, he pours his love into that Holy Eucharist, the, 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 um, the host that we receive. And he wants to pour it into our hearts too. So uh, our, our real thought should be that just as we open our mouths to receive the host, we should be thinking in terms of opening our hearts to him to receive the love that he has to pour into that, his own divine love that he wishes to fill us with, absolutely, fill us to the brim. We should be focusing on that. It's more than a feeling. It's, it's based on a conviction of faith of that divine presence. But there are feelings that do come from it. There's no doubt about it. There are feelings that are consequent upon the faith, the realization of the truth. 
and the awareness of that divine presence, of course there are feelings that come. But our whole self should be our intellect, our wills, all of our emotions and our passions should all be focused on that divine presence. We go through life and our intellects, our wills, our passions, our emotions, in this world they're all over the place. But there in that one moment that we receive our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, they should all come together and all be focused utterly and completely on that divine presence within us. And it's all a matter of love, really. It all comes down to that. If there's no love there, uh, if there's a, a lovelessness that inspires one to just haphazardly go up to the community rail and just go through the routine, that person, you know, basically comes to the communion rail empty-handed and empty-hearted and has nothing to give our Lord. Could our Lord break through that barrier and make that person aware of his love to them for them? He could. I mean, yes, there are people who are praying for all of these people. But for those who approach the whole communion rail already, motivated by, by a gentle, a general love, a genuine love for God, not perfect, but real, genuine, um, our Lord wants nothing more than to uh, increase that love and perfect it. And with every communion, Holy Communion we receive, uh, our Lord should be able to perfect our love more and more and more. Um, we would therefore hope that every communion we receive, regardless of our feelings and emotions and moods and so on, that every single Holy Communion we received would be more devout and more loving than the one before, because we've received that much more grace with each successive Holy Communion. So there should be, for those who receive Holy Communion uh, regularly, a really a perceptible, maybe not to them, but to others, a perceptible growth in, in holiness, in devotion to our Lord, and uh, fidelity to Him. Um, that's, that's our goal. That's what we want to do. Right? So every communion were, uh, were an opportunity to advance further toward our Lord and, his, and to appreciate more His love and to uh, appreciate His love and respond to it more fully with the love of our own. That's mm -hmm. the goal. Uh, there are those who say, okay, when I receive Holy Communion, I'm going to think about the four ends of sacrifice, the four ends of prayer. I'm going to go through the list and think this through. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But uh, ultimately, it can't just be the intellectual exercise of like reading a textbook on, okay, Holy Communion, right? It has to be effective. It has to be something that actually awakens a love, a greater love and, and, and an admiration, uh, our love, admiration for the, God's love for us. That's what it's really designed to accomplish in us. So if we're making a Thanksgiving that is a little too cerebral or too intellectual, and never gets to the level of, you know, the will to draw that affection to our Lord in an act of self-surrendering love to Him, then it's missing the point. Okay. Are there any uh, particular 
say, formula prayers that you would recommend, one prayers after Holy Communion, Father? Well, I mean, there are many. of I mean, St. Thomas Aquinas were beautiful prayers. Uh, the Adoro Te Devote, you know, just praying the uh, Adoro Te Devote in Latin, if you can, and if not, in English, there are plenty of translations. Um, that hymn is so beautiful, expresses so concisely the mysteries of the, of the faith in the Blessed Sacrament, that one could actually consider the Adoro Te Devote like, as the entire De Eucharistia, part of the, of the sacramental theology. Um, but um, if one were to pray that prayer, uh, it's actually a hymn that St. Thomas wrote, one of seven beautiful hymns he wrote to the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, one should pause as he says it and say it slowly and thoughtfully as the, to, so the meaning of it can actually seek, seep in, sort of like rain falling on kind of crusty, hardened soil. You've got to give the... Otherwise, it'll just run off. So you have to allow the the moisture to sink in. So it is with the thoughts of Saint Thomas Aquinas when he prayed those prayers. But there are many prayers, uh, Thanksgiving prayers. You find them in your missal, and again, they are beautiful, and uh, they do express the mind of the Church. But as I say, I mean, if the uh, the prayer itself becomes the focus, uh, the prayer, the words, and so on, and um, it becomes more of a chore of getting through a number of prayers that we've memorized or reading from our books. Again, that, that in itself could prevent us from reaching that level of affection for our Lord of the Blessed Sacrament, which goes beyond words. And just to have those uh, quiet moments that are kind of a wordless uh, mental prayer, just, uh, just pondering the mystery of, of, the, of the Divine Presence, the loving divine presence within us and our union with him. I mean, this is the ultimate goal. Whatever prayer we say should be a means to accomplish that end. People will um, look at the various prayers and I suppose choose those that best help each one of them, uh, you know, uh, appreciate the presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, but ultimately, the, the verbal prayers should, should, lend, should lead to uh, what they call mental prayer, which is simply the awareness of the Divine Presence and elicit a, a great act of love from us. Okay. <clears throat> well, that's great. Father, thank you for that. Very beautiful. Oh, thank certainly. You. Um, unfortunately, Father, I thought it uh, might be time to move from some... Uh, Move to some less beautiful thoughts, uh, some current events uh, that are happening in the world right now. Um, <clears throat> in particular, one thing that uh, that caught our eye, I thought we couldn't we couldn't pass this up. Um, the story coming out of Phoenix, Arizona, mm. um, of a Novus Ordo priest who used uh, the headline says one wrong word during baptism, and the church now says that thousands of his baptisms <laughs> were invalid. Um, apparently, this uh, priest in the Diocese of Phoenix was, uh, for years, decades, I guess, baptizing <clears throat> his parishioners with uh, the formula, we baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, instead of saying, I baptize. Um, so, apparently, these, these, I guess this priest has resigned. There are um, apparently thousands upon thousands of, of baptisms that this, this mm -hmm. priest has, uh, Novus Ordo priest has apparently 
administered, and uh, the bishop of the diocese has now come out and said that all of these, all of these are invalid. All of these baptisms he's been administering for thousands of years. Thousands of years. Oh, sorry, <laughs> all of these thousands oh. of baptisms he's been administering. Uh, what's your What's your take on this, Father? I was going to respond to that. Well, uh, first of all, using the formula "we baptize you" is invalid. Because, as St. Paul says, it is Christ who baptizes. And the priest is the instrument. And when he speaks, he speaks on behalf of Christ himself. Um, just as at the altar, when the priest consecrates the Blessed Sacrament, the priest says, for this is my body, for this is the chalice of my blood, singular, referring. And he's speaking the words of Christ in Persona Christi, in the, in the person of Christ. And so when he baptizes, he has to do the same. And it's not just the word difference between the word we, first person plural, as opposed to the word I, first person singular. It's the very concept. What he's conveying is the community is baptizing you. We as a community are baptizing you. And he's making a deliberate statement to that fact. And that's, that's not the meaning of the I baptize you, because, again, it is Christ to it as the baptizing. That is why even the Novus Ordo Bishop of Phoenix, Arizona, has had to face the fact that, well, these baptisms are invalid. It, this does not express the mind of the church. Um, but, um, you know, Tom, the first, after I got past that, the first thought I had was, how could he be doing this thousands of times over 20 years and nobody noticed this? Yeah. No one stopped him? No one question this, not another member of the Novus Ordo clergy, uh, none of the parents or godparents, or no one, no one questioned this. It made me wonder, well, who finally questioned it and, and why? Mm. Um, and I think this is, again, uh, kind of indicative of the new order, that people just don't know. They're just completely in darkness as to as to what uh, a valid sacrament requires, including the, the sacrament of baptism. <coughs> and so people are prey to this kind of thing in the Novus Ordo. And I, I ask myself, well, here's one clergyman in the Novus Ordo who's been doing this for 20 years now, and the how many others? Who knows what they've been doing? Yeah. And people ask, why are we examining these baptisms that come to us from the Novus Ordo? <laughs> With good reason, we have to. Because you just can't, can't trust them. You have to examine each one of them and get the certitude you need that, that the sacrament was administered validly. Is it possible to do that? Well, yes, it often is. Some cases it's not. Uh, some cases you, you examine it and you find out that they were certainly invalid, as at least in this case. But, you know, Francis a few years ago was talking to his own priests there in Rome and he himself made the comment that, in his estimation, the vast majority of the marriages they do are invalid. Yeah. And uh, then he went on to explain how the common law marriage is given in Buenos Aires, in, uh, in, um, in uh, Argentina, where more marriages had more character of a marriage than the marriages they were doing in their churches, which is a, a very horrible admission, but it, it's unfortunately, he was using that, they use that as an excuse for granting all these marriage annulments. 
So, um, you know, Francis himself has acknowledged that, yeah, a lot of the sacraments, well, at least in terms of marriage that we do, are, are, are invalid. So why not this? Why not all of them, for that matter? I mean, who knows what they're doing, what they're thinking, what they're... Uh, you know, thinking what they think they're doing when they're administering these sacraments, because they often just do not have the Catholic faith. Um, so anyway, I, I consider this to be simply symptomatic of the new order, yeah. and I feel badly for the people uh, that they are left in such ignorance that they don't even realize they're being abused by the Novus Ordo. And, and the clergy who are trying to make the best of it, you know, I just tell them, please, you, do not try to make something that is intrinsically un-Catholic. Do not try to dress it up to make it look Catholic. Just recognize what it is. It's a revolution. It's meant to be a, a substitute for the Catholic religion. And come to practice the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety. Uh, learn a lesson from this example as to what's going on here. Now, I guess, the idea is they have to track everybody down who was baptized by him, uh, putatively baptized by him, and try to baptize them again. Huh. And again, they'll be baptized <clears throat> in the Novus Ordo again. Um, but in any case, uh, that doesn't begin to address then the rest of the problem with the rest of the Novus Ordo sacraments. Yes. Yeah, they, uh, they they did set up a, a website, I guess, Father, where those who were baptized by him could, uh, I guess, fill out a form or contact mm -hmm. uh, the, the diocese through this website and, I guess, apparently be re-baptized. Re but I thought um, I could just read a couple of the, the statements from the bishop of the diocese mm -hmm. and also the the priest himself. Um, looks like his name was Father Aringo. And uh, the bishop of the diocese, Bishop one Bishop Olmsted, he said that uh, he believes Father Arango uh, did not have any intentions to harm the faithful or deprive them of the grace of baptism and the sacraments. He says, I too am sincerely sorry for this error, uh, which has resulted in the disruption to the sacramental lives of a number of the faithful. This is why I pledge to take every step necessary to remedy the situation for everyone impacted. I uh, said all of this after, after a, quote, careful study of the diocesan officials. Uh, but uh, Father Arngo, his statement, he said... Uh, that it saddens me to learn that I have performed invalid baptisms throughout my ministry as a priest by regularly using an incorrect formula. I deeply regret my error and how this has affected numerous people in the parish and elsewhere. I sincerely apologize for any inconvenience my actions have caused and genuinely ask for your prayers, forgiveness, and understanding. Mm -hmm. I thought that... Well, the fact that the, the Novus Ordo Bishop there says, he, I forget the word he used, I was distressed... At the disruption <clears throat> to caused the, the sacramental, sacramental lives of the faithful. Disruption. Well, <laughs> <laughs> to be baptized. Yeah. That's hardly a disruption. That's, that's uh, much more than that. And the priest himself says an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. I sincerely apologize for any inconvenience. Yeah, but they don't see baptism as necessary for salvation, you know, for the <laughs> grace of, of God. I mean, Francis says atheists can be saved by being nice, right? By yeah. being kind Good to people, others. Yeah. Um, he says that communists has a, have a much better view of, than Catholics and often of the real meaning of the scriptures, that the scriptures are really all about the poor, yeah. right? And communists understand that, so they have a very Christian view of things. Uh, if we accept that communists are atheists and they don't get baptized, again, I mean, Francis is saying, well, 
Um, I saw ultimately it just doesn't matter really. So maybe they should just tell all those people in all honesty, well, you know, this was an honest mistake and it's not going to really matter in the end anyway. So don't, why bother? Yeah, I think it's, I thought it was interesting that uh, this Bishop Olmsted, you mentioned, is uh, apparently taking this rather seriously. But there are so many, many other things that we should be taking very, very seriously. Uh, blasphemies and sacrileges that are being perpetrated by the Novus Ordo. Um, it, it just uh, puzzled me that this would be uh, the major crisis of all the things that they've been doing all of these years since Vatican II. But again, uh, as I say, I, I, I'm just in a state of wonderment that two decades would pass, thousands of these ceremonies, and nobody caught this until now that this was happening. Mm -hmm. Took it seriously. Yeah. And perhaps another point one could raise father is their own Novus Ordo Pontiff has uh, said that uh, that hell is not real, that hell does not exist. So that would seem to, on the surface, at least negate any this any need for baptism if there is no hell to be saved Well, from I mean, Francis has indicated that the souls of the bad people just go poof and disappeared in yeah. the end. And everybody else gets to heaven, right? Yeah. So... What's, what's the purpose of baptism? Uh, yeah, I... It, it, in other words, his reaction doesn't fit with the whole theology of... Uh, yeah. You know, uh, maybe he picked up the new catechism and read the part on baptism and decided, well, maybe this would apply here, I don't know, but uh, anyway, um, it is an indication of, again, the, the Novus Ordo and it's the problems it presents. It's just, it is a problem, intrinsically it's a problem. Yeah. Well, Father, there are um, several other things you want to get to, and uh, hope not to make the program too long, but uh, we did want to cover this topic of... Um, the some of the things that have recently uh, come out of the SSPX uh, statements that were made by the superior um, Father Pagliarani of the uh, Society of St. Pius X. And we had an email to that effect that I thought I could read um, just get your response to this, Father. This viewer says that he's been thinking about what Bergoglio is trying to achieve with his recent moves. There is a method to his madness. Uh, he says first that the crackdown on the Latin Mass intended to drive trads into sspx or sspb uh, so this is followed by blatant heresy and turning de fide doctrine of the communion of saints on his head uh, second move is intended to force the hand of the sspx to reject the bergoglio papacy uh, to force a move into state of econtism uh, the sphere says i really can't see how the sspx leadership can just punt and ignore this most recent of bergoglio's heresies this one is just so egregious a direct attack on the creed and if the Society of St. Pius X remains silent on this one, they lose all credibility because silence equals complicity. Going state of a contest, however, will give Bergoglio what he wants, a pretext to issue an excommunication of the Society. So the Society of St. Pius X is now essentially in a checkmated position. What do you think of his assessment, Father? Well, I think the Society of St. Pius X has put itself in a checkmated position for years and years now. Yeah. It's ironic, you know, we're, we're, we're getting the word that um, uh, Father Pagliarani is going to make a statement very soon about meetings he's had with Francis in the Vatican. These meetings have been kept very much hush-hush, obviously. 
But uh, there's going to be a statement made now as a result of his meetings with Francis in the Vatican that's supposed to be coming up very soon. And it's ironic that uh, the news of this, these meetings and the news of uh, the statement, this impending statement, come on the, uh, really on the heels of what Francis said about the ninth article of the Apostles' Creed, <clears throat> the communion of saints. The ninth article, I believe, in the Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Uh, for those who aren't aware, this is what this is what the writer is referring to. Francis' statement of February 2nd, that's the Feast of the Purification um, audience he gave. He said, let's think about those who have denied the faith, who are apostates, who are the persecutors of the church, who have denied their baptism. Are these also at home, meaning at home in the church? He says, yes, these two, the blasphemers, all of them, we are brothers. This is the communion of saints. Now, this is what Francis has said. This absolutely contradicts the teaching of the church with regard to the real meaning of the communion of saints. Okay? You look at the Catechism of the Council of Trent, you look at the Council of Trent itself, you look at statements by Pope Pius XII and Mr. Corporis, you look throughout the church's history for the you know, treatment of the mystery of the communion of saints, and it gives the lie to what Francis says here. I think it's interesting that um, Francis, um, in, in talking about those who have denied the faith, who are apostates, who are persecutors of the church, who are blasphemers, do not these words all apply to Francis himself? His blasphemies, and yes, he is a blasphem blasphemer. He has blasphemed. Even our Lord, our blessed body, he's blasphemed these things, these persons, these holy personages, uh, in things he has said, which are insulting about them, and insulting even to them. And uh, an apostate, well, everything he says about, he, he contradicts the faith over and over again, either implicitly or even explicitly, as in this case. And um, he's, he's shown time and time again that, that, that he does not have the Catholic faith. And he is a persecutor of the church. I mean, anybody who tries to use whatever influence he has to uh, annihilate the traditional mass of the church, to annihilate the traditional Catholic liturgy of the Roman Rite, and to uh, drive Catholics away from the traditional mass, well, that's, that's a persecutor. That's a persecutor of the church. Francis is a persecutor of the church, even as he talks about here right now. And uh, so, I mean, he might as well be talking about himself being in the communion of saints. All those people are. And it also gives us an idea about the kind of people he, he deems worthy of canonization to. Right? They're all members of the communion of saints. Um, it's interesting, I, I think, that the church always um, would be very definite about, about teaching the faith and condemning error. And when, in her counsel, she condemns error, she issues the canons, and she says, anyone who says this, or any, this truth, I'm sorry, let me put it this way, anyone who denies this truth of faith, or anyone who teaches this error against faith, anathema sit, right? The expression anathema comes in Greek, and anathema sit means let him be excluded or cast out of the church. 
is cut off from the church, meaning you're cut off from the communion of saints. You're cut off from the church, you're cut off from the communion of saints. The church and the communion of saints are one. So the church has said anathema to those who deny the faith. This is contrary to what Francis is teaching here. He's denying the tradition of the church in, in, in teaching the faith and in guarding the faithful against errors contrary to the faith. The only thing Francis is saying anathema to, he's not saying anathema to apostates, blasphemers, uh, persecutors of the church. The only thing Francis says anathema to is the traditional mass. That's the one thing he cannot stomach, he cannot tolerate, having the traditional mass of the Roman Rite, and that is the one anathema he issues right now. What does it tell you about him? This is the sad, the sad part, right? Um, is it part of his, is there a method to his madness? Well, I would say there's certainly madness. Is there a method there? I don't know. I think there is a method. I don't know if he's quite thinking it through quite the way our reader, our, our, our writer is saying there. I don't know if he's, you know, using, playing this as a chess game, try to maneuver the SSPX or the SSPV, for that matter, into some untenable position. I don't know what, what he's thinking about there. I don't think he's doing that necessarily. Um, I think he's just motivated by a, a, an actual hatred for the traditional faith. Um, he's already spoken repeatedly against the idea, the very idea of dogma, the very idea of unchangeable truths of faith. He himself has repeatedly repudiated, rejected, he's condemned the rigidity, right, of, of uh, those who have an unchangeable faith, body of truths that form the faith. He has rejected the very concept of this. In other words, this man is the quintessential modernist. He's a modernist from head to toe. It's in his DNA. He's just, he is a modernist. He is the modernist in chief right now. And um, he is the supreme pontiff of modernism. Um, so I think his objective is to do what he was placed, therefore, by the St. Gallen Mafia, and that is to finally carry through the mission of Vatican II to its ultimate objective. Its ultimate objective was to eradicate the traditional Catholic faith and establish a, a basically a world religion, a world, a religion of the world and for the world. Uh, which does not uh, really offer uh, eternal salvation, but is all about basically social justice and uh, living happily in this world. That's that's what I that's all I think Francis is thinking about. Uh, I do I do believe though. I mean, I, I will go along with what this gentleman is saying here. So, lady, then I apologize uh, that um, that. He is mindful of those who hold the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic sacraments in spite of him and his attempts to crush those things. And I think he does have a plan for them, too. I think he wants to marginalize them. Some have suggested what he wants to do 
is to kind of draw all the those who want the traditional Latin Mass, the traditional rite of Mass, into the Society of St. Pius X and get them all there in that same room and then turn the lights out on them and just crush them in one fell swoop. There are those who actually suggest that, that he, he wants to put an end to all these different individual Latin Mass groups, uh, basically drive whatever remnants he can't crush there into the Society of St. Pius X, then uh, basically get the Society of St. Pius X to make its submission to him, and then cut their heads off. And I, I'm sorry to say that I think uh, if that's Francis's plan, he might well succeed because I think the Society of St. Pius X uh, is ripe for that. Especially in light of what we're being told now, that uh, Brother Pagliarotti has been meeting with Francis, even in the light of this, meeting with him. Um, why? What, what's the purpose? Is he telling him, you know, you're an apostate, you're a persecutor of the church, you're, uh, repent, repent, you have to, you know, give up your apostasy and, and uh, embrace the Catholic faith if you want to save your soul. I don't know if Father Pagliarotti is telling him that. Uh, I would guess that what he's telling him is, how can we work together? Is there a way we can work this out? Is there a place for the Society of St. Pius X to still maintain the traditional uh, mass and sacraments and catechisms within the framework of your new order? Mm -hmm. I would tend to think that this is really the substance of the conversation. It'll be very interesting to see what kind of statement comes out. Mm -hmm. Father, what would you say to Francis if you were to meet with him? If I would? If you were to meet with Francis, what would you say to him? I would, if I had a chance to, to talk to him, if we were sitting together uh, you know, on an airplane or something like that, and uh, uh, he introduced himself, <laughs> <laughs> I think I would say, well, actually, um, you know, you are... Um, an enemy of the Catholic faith. You're a blasphemer, you're an apostate. Um, your soul, nonetheless, is redeemed by our Lord. He paid a great price for you. He wants to save you. But um, as long as you continue this course, you're, you, are not, you cannot be saved. Uh, you have to embrace the true Catholic faith and practice the true Catholic religion and, uh, and reject this Novus Ordo entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, maybe I would, well, I would certainly pray to the Holy Ghost for guidance and what to say and how to say it, but I think that would have to be the message. Repent. Yeah. Repent and make reparation for all the terrible scandal you've caused. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's actually a, a doctor, artist, I think his name is, who, who recently uh, <coughs> came out with a rather bold statement that he believes that Francis is behind all of the vaccine mandates yeah. throughout the world, that he's the one who's actually uh, spearheading that effort. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess one of the reasons why he, he says this, perhaps, is not only because Francis has met with those in the Vatican who are producing these mandates, not only has Francis had this great seminar, of, what, a year ago or so, with a hundred people, all of them pushing vaccine, vaccines, 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 uh, and Francis orchestrated this. this. I mean, the Church of the Latter-day Saints was involved in financing this with Francis, too. 
And, uh, but also because um, Francis was actually, I think, the first state to require the vaccinations of their workers, the Vatican City, I think was the first. So he was the first to introduce a vaccine mandate, as far as I know. But also he's insisting that it's a moral obligation to be morally vaccinated. And I just saw the figure that 85% of the Catholics following Francis are vaccinated. The highest uh, percentage of the followers of any religion, the Novus Ordo Catholics, yeah. uh, are vaccinated. So, you know, you, you put all that together and you think, well, maybe he has a point. Um, I, I, certainly, Francis is a kingpin in this effort. There's no doubt about it. But um, to say that he's orchestrating the whole thing from the Vatican, I don't know. Is it impossible? No. Hey, when the election was going on, they found that there were servers in Italy who, where, that were actually involved in the American elections as the, as the votes were being counted, right? And uh, that was kind of a wake-up call. Right? What were they doing there? Who, who was controlling them? You know... Um, well, you know, the, the word is that George Soros with Dominion uh, really had a, a great deal of control in uh, swinging that election, right? And uh, basically creating Joe Biden as a president. Um, it is very likely that uh, George Soros also created uh, Justin Trudeau in Canada. That Trudeau and Biden are just creatures of George Soros and his money and his uh, machinations. And I think there's, uh, there's evidence there to say it without being, being rash suspicion, yeah. to say the least. And this, is, this puts uh, Justin Trudeau in a, in a special light here in Canada in light of what's going on because, I mean, the truckers who went there thinking they, they might have just been dealing with Justin Trudeau and his pride and, and arrogance as the head of the country or so on. But the fact is that if Justin Trudeau is, as I firmly believe he is, created by George Soros and George Soros's money, then Justin Trudeau has to answer for him. And he has to make sure that the, uh, the uh, rebellion, as it were, against his mandates does not succeed. He has to crush them. He has to do the will of Soros and see that the will of Soros is, is enforced, or otherwise Justin Trudeau's days are numbered. He will be uncreated by Soros, and somebody else will take his place, another creature of Soros. But, uh, you know, if this is what the truckers of uh, Canada are up against, if they... If they if they really are dealing with a man who is desperate and he, he has to stop them at all costs, even by instituting martial law in Canada, you know, uh, this extreme measure. I mean, it was only maybe a year, a little more than a year ago, that the report went out that some uh, um, uh, child care institutions in Canada uh, uh, which were run by the church, actually, responsible for the deaths of children buried in these mass graveyards. They had. This is the story that went around. It's ironic that the actually subsequent investigations 
you know, in, investigated those graveyards, and they have not found a single, a single body of any child anywhere in any of those, uh, where, where reputedly hundreds of bodies of children were buried. Um, nothing, zero. You know, it was all a complete sham. But it started a, a reaction in Canada, which led to the burning of 10 churches, at least 10 Catholic churches. And uh, Trudeau had no problem with that. All he could do is come out and talk about how the Catholic Church has to make reparation for all these terrible crimes. What does Francis do? He apologizes for it. Just takes it, it's all guilty, everybody plead guilty. He's always willing to plead guilty on behalf of uh, the Catholics of the past. Um, but that didn't require martial law or anything of the kind, right? But this does, right? This does. Why? Because it's a threat to the globalists, to Trudeau and his creator, and his handlers. So this is kind of the, uh, the issue that they're having to deal with right now yeah. in Canada. And um, believe me, I mean, th there is no more... It is it is ironic that the truckers were saying we need we want these vaccines we want these mandates these COVID mandates removed, and Trudeau's response is to impose martial law, which is like ramping up the the control thousandfold, right? To just to basically literally crush them. Recently, a, a photograph has been circulating showing Justin Trudeau sitting with George Soros and his, I don't know who the lady is, maybe she's finance minister or something in the Canadian government, but uh, the story was that this uh, Emergencies Act now will enable her, actually, and any bank who has any suspicion that any of the accounts are being used to finance let's say the truckers, or any protests, that the bank is authorized, without any penalties whatsoever, authorized to shut down now, just to freeze the account, just like that. Now talk about tyranny. Uh, based on a suspicion, the bank can do that, freeze the account. Uh, this is not only corporate accounts, but personal accounts too. So they can actually uh, basically... Um, just prevent you from having any money. <laughs> you know, you don't have any. They just, they just basically uh, froze it, and you can't have it. We saw them do that with um, what was it that they, GoFundMe, yeah. right? Millions of dollars, right? yeah. uh, because the Canadian government says, "Don't let them have that." GoFundMe says, "Okay," right? <laughs> and um, but this is they will stop literally at nothing. Because they know that if the truckers in Canada succeed, that the game is up. That this will be noted by throughout the whole world, as Trudeau himself has said. You know, the whole world's watching Canada, and that's true. The whole world is watching Canada to see who's going to win this titanic struggle. Uh, but I don't know that the truckers really know who they're dealing with. By the way, did you receive, you received an email from someone in Canada, which... Um, um, I think is very interesting, and uh, I wonder if you'd be willing to read that, Tom. Sure. This is from a Canadian who's actually boots on the ground in Canada and very much closely following developments here. There were some 
Uh, but some information that this writer gave that I did not know, but I find very, very interesting. Sure, yeah. This um, very, very faithful viewer from Canada, a great friend of the program, she wrote in uh, just a few days ago, and she said uh, she watched the video where you talked about the truck convoy in uh, Ottawa. And uh, she says, I follow the live feed of two truckers who are the main organizers of what is taking place in Ottawa. The truckers are the most peaceful protesters in the world. One of the truckers today brought, bought flowers to share with the ladies and girls and the female police officers. They spent a good part of the morning giving them out. The Ottawa police chief is going to be a fall guy in this whole situation. He is the one that is sending out the police officers to do all kinds of unlawful acts. And by the way, he just resigned. He did, yeah. yes, yes. Um, says the truckers are going through their lawyers to get satisfaction for the unjust deeds of the police officers. For example, the stealing of the fuel. Father Jenkins used the word theft, which is exactly what it was. A court injunction required the police uh, to return the jerry cans to them, of which uh, they have done that. Uh, she says the honking of the horns has stopped due to the court injunction. They have seven more days left before they can resume. Father Jenkins was correct in that the Child Protective Services was going to come in and check on the children, but as of yet, they still have not done this. What is going to be difficult for them is that 25% of the truckers have their families with them because they actually live in their trucks as a family. I'm not sure how this is going to sit with the truckers. On Monday, one of the organizers called for 1,000 trucks to come from Alberta and trucks to come from Quebec. They are on their way. And today, something happened that is going to make a huge difference in what the police service is going to be able to get away with. 100, 100 truckers rather became peace officers. Uh, this was on February 10th. She says they swore an oath to uphold the law publicly, and now they are able to stand up with the police. I'm not sure what will happen because they can charge anyone, including the police, with citizen's arrest if they are carrying out something unlawful. This will have to unfold the way it will. The group of truckers gives me hope. They are not leaving Ottawa until all mandates are gone throughout Canada, and I believe it is something they want to see in writing so that it never happens again. Also, they are causing difficulties in the Coutts-Detroit border crossings. So I just wanted to share this with you. Uh, if there's anything else that is pertinent, I will send another email. This is affecting the whole world, and as Father Jenkins has said, we need to pray. Uh, she says, this group of truckers begins their days in prayer. They are not Catholic, but they have some pastors who lead them in prayer in the morning, and I'm sure throughout the day if they request it. So God bless you, Father Jenkins. Keep doing all that you are doing. You are in my daily prayers. So, I appreciate that very much, uh, knowing from the other side of the border what's happening. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting when uh, the writers said that 100 <laughs> truckers had actually swore, taken the oath and actually become peace, op peace yeah. officers, she says. Yeah. And uh, they now have the authority even to uh, make arrests of police who do unlawful things. Yes. Right? <laughs> so that's kind of ironic. <laughs> yes. But... Uh, the world we live in. <laughs> so we do need to pray for them. We need to pray for the police too. You know, uh, I, I understand that there are many police in Ottawa who are not going to enforce these things. And that is why the enforcement has been so irregular, right? There are, there are policemen who will, uh, but many of the police do not want to do that. They're being forced against their will were they just outright refused? I understand the military too, that the Canadian military is very much against 
And uh, this is what I've been told. And why uh, any thought of bringing in the military is pretty much not happened, right? And not, they've not followed through on it. That's a very good sign because no tyrant can succeed unless he finds people who are so heartless and so mindless that they will basically just sell themselves as mercenaries to politicians to carry out their uh, their uh, their whims, you know, and and, and basically fulfill the, the uh, to to impose the tyranny. Uh, people who would be, you know, if ordered to. Uh, fire upon their own parents or beat their own brothers and sisters would without hesitation do it. These are the kind of people that, you, that a tyrant needs. He needs to find uh, people like that who will enforce the tyrant, needs people like that to enforce his will. And uh, we, we have to pray that uh, these tyrants find very few who are willing to stoop so low as to sell themselves to be nothing but mob, glorified mob enforcers in uniforms. Um, so anyway, I, I do stress that, that need for prayer. Please, please, please pray. Um, pray to St. Michael the Archangel for our law enforcement, that they stand for the law of God first, that their loyalties are to God and, of course, country. Their loyalties are to family. Uh, pray for those who are trying to hold the line here. Um, by the way, I also do want to mention uh, specifically prayers for some dear souls who are, who are very ill right now. Please pray for Stephen Sajarto. Please pray for uh, John Tyndall. Please uh, pray for David Hoprichter. And a number of other very, very dear souls uh, near and dear to us who are suffering mightily. Please keep them in your prayers. There are so many more. Uh, but if you just pray for the intentions of the priests, uh, my, myself and others. Um, so many intentions have been given to us. God knows who they are, and he'll bless them because of your prayer, but he'll bless you too because of your prayer. So I appreciate that very much. Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time and all that you do. Well, certainly, Tom. Thank you very much. Yep. And uh, I, uh, I just have, uh, you know, I wonder, with, with the truckers now... So busy uh, standing up for liberty in Canada. I wonder who's delivering the food at the grocery stores. Uh, yeah. Do you know? No. Oh, <laughs> there must be some who are doing so. Um, but uh, in any case, um, so I, I just wonder about the Canadian people as a nation. So I'm busy asking for prayers for everybody. I, I do ask you to pray for the Canadian people as a nation, mm -hmm. that they, they lead the way in this and that God alleviates their sufferings. Uh, because the reason why they're reacting to this the way they are is because they are suffering. They're reacting to suffering that is being imposed on them. So just pray for the whole Canadian nation. Absolutely. Thank you, Father, and thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.